This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Well, I think we can all agree that if God's glory can be displayed through country music, that it can be displayed through anything. So, there's... Hold your applause. It's one of those great dividers in life, right? You either love it or you hate it, but that was... um, I won't show my hand as to where I fall in that debate, but that was beautiful. That was wonderful. Praise the Lord. Hey, I want to say welcome to our third service, joining us in the coffee shop tonight. We love you guys. Let's pray as we jump into God's word. King Jesus, thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for walking with us, uh, even when we tend to push your hand away often. Lord, uh, I pray that you would teach us through your scriptures this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to jump right in. If you have a Bible, Judges chapter 7 is where we're going to eventually land. Judges chapter 7. And let me give you a little bit of background as we, as we jump in sort of feet first today. The nation of Israel, if you were to look at and sort of chart their history as a people, especially as we're told it in the scriptures, uh, could be equated to, um, uh, uh, to a roller coaster. I mean, they have some extremely high highs and some extremely low lows, and those highs and those lows are often pitted against each other in close proximity. You get whiplash reading through some of this nation's history. They grew th- go through seasons of prosperity and seasons of goodness and seasons of following after the heart of Jesus, and then they also grow through seasons where they hold God at a distance and say, we've got this, we got it covered, we don't really need you. In fact, we're going to go the exact opposite uh, way and worship idols and build high places, etc., etc. As we jump into the book of Judges, we are going to encounter the nation of Israel at a season of prosperity. A season of rest. In fact, at the end of Judges chapter 5, we get a little bit of context for the story we're going to jump into today. And it says this, the the land had rest for 40 years. This is under the great leadership and ministry of one of their judges whose name was Deborah. She led the nation well. God's blessing was on her. And for 40 years, they had a season of, of rest, of goodness, of prosperity, And you may be able to look back at your own life, Um, I can look back on mine and see that seasons of blessing often point me or lead me and sort of uh, haphazardly bring me to the place of complacency. Can anybody relate? Seasons of blessing often lead us to this place where where we may not say it, but really we live it. God, I I don't know if I need you because things are going pretty well. Like I've got this... I've got this nailed. Um, The nation of Israel, that's the place that they came to. And the very next verse, Judges chapter 6, verse 1, reads like this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the season of rest, the season of prosperity, the season of goodness directly leads them to sort of the lazy boy chair where they put their feet up, pop the little recliner out, lay back, and... All of a sudden, they're in this place where they do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it says this really strange thing that the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. 
that God's action towards them was, I'm going to break you out of this season of complacency, this season of idolatry, by bringing a little bit of hardship and a little bit of oppression on you. We don't love this about God, do we? Let's be honest with each other this morning. We don't, we don't love that God often breaks us out of seasons of complacency by bringing us into seasons of adversity, but he does. God gave them into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. Now, the Midianites, you need to understand, this was a prolific, prominent army. They were a fighting people. They were well-resourced. They were well-trained. They were ready to go, and for seven years, they did not have much trouble keeping their powerful thumb on the Israelites and keeping them oppressed. The Israelites would go into the mountains and hide out. Um, they lived much of this time of their existence. These seven years were lived in fear. But, drum roll please, there you go, okay, but God is going to bring, that's enough, that's okay, sorry, um, God is going to bring them a person, a man to lead them into this next season of prosperity. See, it's often cyclical. They get beat down a little bit, God raises them up as they increase their dependence on him, and then it starts over again. The person God's going to bring to bring Israel out of the season of complacency and adversity is named Gideon, you may have heard of him. Listen to his resume. God calls him, and here's what he says. Please, Lord, how can I, this is verse 15 of chapter 6, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. So like, in this tribe that's not even the strongest tribe in Israel, my tribe, my family is the weakest in that tribe. And I am the least in my father's house. I'm the youngest, I'm the weakest, I'm the least qualified, even of my own family. And God, you want to choose me? God, you want to work through me? And so Gideon reluctantly takes up this mantle, this mantle to be Lord's chosen person, his his leader in this nation. And Gideon had to be a pretty good salesperson because he is able to recruit, to fight with him against these Midianites, 32,000 other Israelites. Now, 32,000 people, untrained and unqualified with a leader who's the last and the least, going against the Midianites, they had about 135,000 people in their trained, well-resourced army. Now, show of hands, anybody want to get in on that, right? I mean, you look at this at the, at the onset, and you look at it through simply just natural eyes, and you go, if I'm, a, if I'm a betting man in Vegas, my money's on Midian, not on Gideon, right? 135,000 to 32,000, not exactly great odds if you're a fighting person, Listen to the way this story continues, and this is where we're going to jump in. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Here's how it reads. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Marath in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give you into their hand. Now, here's the thing. If I'm I'm Gideon, I'm just going to throw a quick time out up there to God. And I don't want to question you, God. Like, I'm sure you're great at a lot of things. 
I mean, you are king of kings, lord of lords. You do sit on the throne in the universe. But maybe math isn't your thing, okay? Just going to throw it out there. Let's just have a conversation, an honest conversation, God. We have 32,000. They have 135,000. And you're saying there's too many of us? You've got to be kidding me. Too many for me to give you into the hand of the Midianites, into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. It's this really interesting principle that weaves its way all throughout the scriptures. From beginning to end, we see God inviting and calling people that he can shine through. Not not people that necessarily have it all together, which should be great news for us this morning, should it not. But that God calls people not who, who have it all together, but people who understand that they don't and are willing to be used. See, here's the principle I want us to wrap our hearts and our minds around this morning, is that God demonstrates his strength, his strength through our weakness. So you look at one of the great leaders of the nation of Israel, Moses. Moses leads his people out of Egypt Moses has multiple movies made about how awesome he is. And yet, if you go back and read the story of Moses, his claim throughout the whole time is, I'm the wrong guy. I'm a murderer. I'm weak. I've got a stutter. If you could bring other people alongside of me, God, that would be awesome. That'd be great. We could accomplish it if you had somebody qualified. Um, David, arguably the greatest king the nation of Israel ever sees would have been overlooked because his dad didn't even think he was qualified to be in the lineup of people that might be chosen, right? I mean, he's making a a food, he's getting Taco Bell for his brothers while everybody else is being paraded in front of uh, Samuel to see who would be the next king. And yeah, this is the person that God chooses to work through. See, it appears in God's economy, it is possible to be too big, God to use, but it's impossible to be too small. It is, you can be too big for God to use, but you cannot be too small. It's interesting. I was uh, interacting with my small group around this, uh, my life group around not this specific passage, but another one that made the same point. And we started to really wrestle with this idea that even in the church, we don't like this, do we? We don't like We don't, no. We would much rather take a strength finder's test and a spiritual gift assessment than we would do any sort of reflection on our weaknesses, wouldn't we? I mean, it's sort of interesting, and I say it sort of tongue-in-cheek, but have you ever taken a weakness assessment where you took the test and it was like, wow, you're really terrible at hospitality? Should have a few more people over, right? So Jesus can, can shine through that. You're the least welcoming person we know. We're going to put you at the door Sunday. You're so intimidating, Jesus has to shine. People will just be turned away. We don't like this, do we? We do not like this idea. And if you're anything like me, I often either make excuses around my weaknesses or try to cover them. So it sounds a little bit like this. Well, well, if I were a little bit more intelligent with the Bible, then I'd share my faith. Because God needs me to be really smart to shine through. Or uh, if I was a little bit um, more 
more quiet or if I was a little bit more loud, well, then God could probably use me. Or if my health was a little bit better, then I would jump in the game. And when it gets there, I'm in. Or when my circumstances are a little bit different, then I'm sure that I'll be a vessel that God wants to use. And we have this, even in the church, we have this tendency to say, strong is better. And God works through strong people and people that are able rather than embracing the biblical principle that says, well, actually, he loves to choose small, insignificant, broken vessels to shine his glory through. He loves to. He loves to. Listen to the way that Paul says this. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes, if I'm going to boast, so he's in this interaction with um, a church that he loves, that he helps start, and he's going, people have come in after them, and they have their resumes, their apostle resumes with them, and Paul goes, all right, if you want to play that game, let's play it, but if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the things that show my weaknesses, because in then you see Jesus, not me. That's what I'm going to boast in, he says. So I see that sort of tongue-in-cheek. Have we ever developed a spiritual weakness assessment? Or have we done a weakness finder's test? I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I do believe that there's some absolutely beautiful, powerful principles about the way that weakness actually positions us better than strength to not only be used by the King of kings and Lord of lords, but, by, but how to know him and walk with him better. So let me point out three of those that I then come through in the story of Gideon. Look again with me at verse two. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give into the hands of the Midianites, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. That word boast is key. It means to glory in or to adorn or to make beautiful. And so here's what God wants to do in the nation of Israel, and I would propose that he wants to do this in our lives too, to position us not only for usefulness for his kingdom, but for joy as we walk with him. Here's what he's doing to the nation of Israel. He's bringing them low to subdue their pride. All throughout their history, they have this tendency to win a few battles and think they're awesome. I mean... So glad we're, we're so different. So glad I'm so different. A few little successes, and we start to, the human heart is just drawn towards, I'm going to put myself up on that throne of my life, of the universe, and the thought goes into our head, if I were God, I would do this so much differently and so much better, and, and he could probably stand to take a few notes from me. Right? I'm not alone in this, am I? Maybe I am. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself, which is fine. But here's what God is doing. He's saying, pride that elevates you will actually destroy you. Did you know there's a way to win victory that will actually lead to your defeat? And it's a victory that leads us to think, I'm awesome, rather than deflecting the glory and praise back to him and saying, he is amazing. See, the scriptures are going to teach God hates pride. He hates it because it robs him of his glory and it robs you of joy. Because the life aligned with the way God created the whole universe to function has him on the throne, not us. Has him on the throne, not us. And humility for us will either come through an awareness of his divinity or it will come through humiliation. You, you get to choose. 
but we will be humbled. It will either be a humility that comes through realizing he's God, I'm not, or it will be a humility that comes through humiliation. I was going through my evening ritual uh, this last week, which includes watching SportsCenter. So judge me if you want, but it's just where I'm at. All right, so um, I'm watching SportsCenter, and I saw this video that I thought, oh my goodness, that perfectly displays what I feel like this passage wants to bring out and another passage that we're going to look at in a second. Will you watch this with me? This is a clip of an organ runner who thinks he's won a race. And at the very end, he's reminded he's not as awesome as he thinks he is. Will you watch with me? Take my word for it. There's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanjay Pepeo. He's getting the crowd. He wants the crowd to cheer his performance. And at the end, he gets pipped. He gets pipped by Marin Simon of Washington. And you just can't do this kind of stuff, Lewis. You can. And you know, you see his face, and you know no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. Um, the scriptures are going to make the same point you just saw. The Proverbs simply say, pride goes before destruction and haughty spirit before fall. I mean, you see me, he's like, yeah, I'm awesome, I'm awesome, and now I'm a sermon illustration. Ah! <laughs> oh. And I think so many times God um, longs to reroute our lives to say, no, you're not, as, you're not as great as you think you are. And, and your greatness actually comes, your power actually comes when you're on your knees understanding you're not as great as you think you are rather than when you're beating your chest going, aren't I awesome? He goes, this is this counterintuitive, paradoxical invitation of the Gospels and the work and the words of Jesus to say, in your weakness, you actually find what it means to be strong. So the Apostle, Apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul, who arguably had one of the most fruitful ministries the world has ever seen, has ever seen, had a ethereal experience that had the potential maybe to puff him up a little bit. He was, had this vision of heaven or was called up into heaven. He doesn't even really know. And he goes, this was so amazing. I was called up into third heaven and I saw things. I heard things absolutely unspeakable. And God, in, in order to sort of balance out Paul's amazing experience, gives him what Paul calls a thorn in the flesh. Listen to the way he interprets what God is doing in his life. He says, so to keep me from becoming what? Conceited, quite literally puffed up. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now, I'm not going to unpack all that this means, except to say that whatever it was, was given by God, and Satan was the UPS guy delivering it. Okay, theologically, we can wrestle with that afterwards, but that's what the scriptures are going to say. Not UPS specifically, but you understand. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So he says it twice. This is what God wants to do. I had this experience that may have had the tendency to puff me up and make me go, I'm amazing and I'm awesome. Look what I've been a part of. Look what I've seen. Look what I've done. And God goes, I need, in order to use you, I've got to keep you humble. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me but he said, oh, this is, this is beautiful. If we can get this, it's powerful. My 
Grace is sufficient for you. Now, just a quick time out. Not just to save you, friend. That's, that's what I was taught about Christianity for years and years and years. God's grace is enough to save you, and then you get on with it and work and strive and earn. And if you don't, you should feel guilty. Welcome to the party, right? That, that is not Christianity. This is Paul's, Paul writing this. He goes, listen, even in my Christian journey, in my walk, there was something given to me to keep me dependent on Jesus, even in light of all the amazing things that I've accomplished and experiences that I've had. What was more important to me, to, what was more important to God was not to give me great experiences, but keep me close to the heart of Jesus. That was the most important thing that God could do for Paul. So he says, but in my, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is displayed, Paul, not through your awesomeness and not through your, your amazing talents and your gifting that I've given you, but Paul, my power is displayed through your weakness. So Paul says, for when I'm re- weak, verse 10, then I'm actually strong. See, here's the deal, friend. You can either walk in your strength or God's, but you can't walk in both. And a walk with Jesus, a journey with Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, it never gets to the point where we outgrow our need. If it does, we've elevated ourselves to a position of pride, and we will not see his position, his provision, if that is our position. We just will not. We'll rob ourselves of it. I was wrestling with this this week because I go like, what does that really look like? What does that really mean? How do we step into this weakness in a way that would honor and lift high Jesus and not just be self-depreciating false humility? And here's what I sense God saying, Ryan, even your weaknesses or even your strengths are only strengths in comparison to people who aren't quite as good as you at certain things, but in reality, how good are you in comparison to me? Like, so I think all we have to do to operate from a position of quote-unquote weakness or need is get a picture from the Hubble telescope that reminds us we are not, I don't think God wants to tell us we're small. He wants to remind us that we are I mean, nobody in heaven's going to be going, hey, Paulson, why don't you give us a sermon? We heard you're awesome. I mean, I know Jesus is preaching on the other stage, but no way, no way. I think operating from a position of weakness simply means that we operate from a position of honesty, good self-reflection of who we really are in light of him. And then it's being willing to step into that in a communal way to say, I don't have it all together. I don't have it all together. I, I'm, I'm far from perfect. Uh, la- last weekend, I had just an absolutely terrible weekend. I, mean, I got to go celebrate my grandmother's life at her memorial, but I came back having seen... Um, my uncle battling for his life in a cancer center in LA and my father turned 91 and he has dementia, a brilliant man whose mind is just gone. And I, and I come back going, I love you guys, but I got nothing for you unless Jesus filmed. 
And I think so many times, I'll just be honest with you, I try to cover my weakness and cover my need instead of just exposing it. And the beautiful words of Jesus in the Beatitudes, listen to what he says. He said, blessed are those who mourn. And it's not try really hard to mourn. It's not try hard to cry and get upset about things. We have this kid's book called Tear Soup, where frog and toad, they think of really sad things, and they cry into this uh, little bucket, and then they make tear soup out of it, and the kids love it. But he's not saying make tear soup. That's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is be honest about your need, be honest about your pain, and in your honesty, you'll find that he is sufficient and he is good. But if you want to cover it up, and you want to pretend like everything's okay, you will never see his comfort and his provision. Never will. See, the key to being comforted is to being vulnerable. Friends, this is not a place, will you look up at me for a second? This church is not a place where you need to hide your scars. You don't need to pretend like things are okay if they're not. In fact, Jesus' power will be displayed through this body as we go, I'm not okay, but praise Jesus, he is. He is, and his grace is sufficient for us. It's why we need to continue to have a celebrate recovery ministry. It is not an option for us, I don't think, where we can walk in and go, I am not okay. Jesus is, and he's still on the throne, and so we're okay. (laughs) But my life's a mess. My life's a mess. The honesty opens me to receive from my community, and it also puts me in the place to minister to others. Have you ever... Thought, you walked away from a conversation from somebody who just nailed it and was awesome and thought, I'm so glad I had that conversation. I mean, somebody who's prideful and puffed up and actually ministers to you, I don't think, I, I haven't. It's broken vessels that God uses consistently all throughout scripture and consistently in his church today. I love the way that Pastor Rick Warren puts it when he says this, other people are going to find healing in your wounds Your greatest life messages and your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest hurts. And if we cover those, we prevent the strength of God from flowing through us. Here's the way the story continues. Verse 3. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever's fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Are you kidding me right now? Like, if God says that to me and I'm Gideon, I'm like, so, like, you have another army somewhere that I'm not aware of? Because our feeble attempt at victory just walked off? And the Lord said to Gideon, there are still two many people. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone who I'm say, they shall not go with you, shall not. Verse five, he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. This is awesome. Here's the, I mean, okay, just keep going. Likewise, Everyone who kneels down to drink. So he goes, you're going to make two categories. There's, there's normal people and there's weird people. <laughs> now, it turns out, good news, bad news situation for Gideon here. Um, he gets the normal people. Bad news is 10,700 of them are abnormal. 
The normal people are the one who go to this stream, who pick up the water and go, which I don't know, that's how I've drinking out of a lot of rivers in my life. That's always how I drink out of them. I never go down to the water's edge and put my entire head in the water and go, delicious and refreshing. I've never done that. But it turns out 10,700 Israelites do. And God goes, you don't get the weirdos. They're all going home. You get the normal folks who just cupped the water and drank it. And um, bad news is, Gideon, now you're down to 300. (laughs) Kidding me? Wow. Here's what we start to see. see. See, here's the beauty and power of weakness. One, it subdues our pride. It gets us off of the throne of our life. And second, it increases our dependency. Wouldn't you agree that depleted resources always lead to increased dependency? And anytime we feel like we've grown beyond that, anytime I feel like I've grown beyond that, I feel like I'm my two-and-a-half-year-old son swatting my wife's hand away as he goes down a water slide unable to swim. He's like, I got this, Mom. Like, we're good. And he'll scream at the water and he'll go, no. And he'll try to hit his, her hand out of the way. So he goes down like a torpedo into the pool that he's unable to swim in. And I feel like God goes, exactly. Every time you think you nail it, Ryan, every time you think you've got it, you just grew further away from actually being in a place where I can use you. The beauty and power of weakness is that it increases our dependency. I love the way that the great pastor Alistair Begg puts it when he says this, if dependency is our goal, then weakness is an advantage. Dependency is our goal, then weakness is our advantage. And and I'll just be honest with you, as I see in myself, that self-sufficiency often leads me to a place of God deficiency. When I think I can do it, God's response is often, let's see it. Go right ahead and try. Some of you are in marriage cycles where you've just, that, that's what you, you're going, God, I can do it. And he's going, well, okay, but when it breaks down, come back to me. I love you. Some of you are in job cycles where you've just said over and over and over again, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, and it just seems like the ground is giving way underneath you. Here's what God knows about his interaction with Gideon and about his interaction with us. The more he takes away, the closer he draws us to his heart. And the best thing he can give you is himself. So if he has to take things away, trinkets and shiny things away, in order to draw you closer to his heart, in his goodness and his grace, he's too good of a God not to do that for you. And so some of us are in the position we're in this morning, and and I just, I, I hope our ears are open to a God who's saying, would you come home? You've tried it on your own, it's failed you, but there's a power in weakness, there's a beauty in weakness because it leads you back to my throne and to me. And and see, here's the thing, in weakness, we find awareness that God is at work even when we're unable to be. If we have all the strength and all the power, we will often overlook the fact that God is working. Because we have more than enough to eat, we very rarely ever pray, give me today my daily bread with any sorts of urgency. But it's in that weakness, in that dependency that we start to have a 
increased awareness. I've talked to so many couples where they go, we walk through this insanely difficult season of life, and for the first time, we really saw God's hand at work in our marriage. Why? Because they didn't have anywhere else to turn. The way we are as people is we will exhaust all of our resources before we turn to him. And I think what we're being taught this morning is simply don't wait for me to deplete all of your resources to turn back to my goodness and grace. You need me now. Every hour you need me. So just come. So just come. It also increases our intimacy, our weakness. We're pushed in, and if the pinnacle of Christian maturity is Jesus' invitation to his church, which it is, abide in me. What's the best thing you can do as a follower of Jesus? Abide. Know that you're dependent on the vine as the branch to bear any sort of fruit. Not optional, not, hey, if, you're, if you run out of resources on your own, then run to Jesus. No, the whole Christian life is found in one word, Abide. Walk with him, know him, receive his love, give his love to others, bear fruit. And he goes, there's, there's, it's not plan A and there's a plan B, and if you don't bear fruit that way, you can bear fruit the another way. He goes, no, 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 no. John chapter 15, verse 5 says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do a few awesome things. No, apart from me. You can do nothing. I'm reminded that I can have the resources in my hand or the resources in Jesus' hand. And I often think I have more in my hands than he does. I often do. Maybe you're in the same boat that I am. I think his invitation to us this morning is don't be too ashamed of your deficiency to receive his provision. Run to him in an honest, transparent way. You need healing from the loss of a child, of a baby. You run to him. You need healing from a marriage that hasn't gone the way you've struggled with an infertility. Run to him. He's enough. Has the job fallen through? Have the kids left? Whatever it is, run to him. He's enough. And he goes, my arms are open wide. I love you. Welcome home. Judges chapter 7, I'm going to finish this, verse 9, says this. And that same night, so that same night after he lost his next 10,700 men and went from 32,000 versus 135,000 to 300 versus 135,000, that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand But if you are afraid, I love that God makes provision for fear. And and, um, Gideon takes him up on his provision. Listen. And if you are afraid, go down to the camp with Parah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say. And after your hand shall be strengthened to go against the camp. Then he went down with Parah, which means he was afraid. He's like, heck yeah, I'm afraid. I'm a normal man, and you just took away the majority of my army. We were fighting against somebody already bigger than us. Thank you very much for making this provision for fear. I get to take my armor bearer with me against 135,000 people. Thank you, God. Okay. Ever felt like that with God, though, where you're going, there's the giants on the horizon are far greater than the resources in my corner? Listen to what he says. 
And the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east lay all along the valley like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number. And as the sand is on the seashore in abundance, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling him a, a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I had a dream. And behold, a cake of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tamp, camp and struck it. So it fell and it turned upside down. So that tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, that is no other than the sword of Gideon. The son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. You imagine Gideon hearing this conversation going to his armor bearer like, he's talking about us. He has no clue. We only have 300 men. Shh, go get the rest of the guys, right? I mean, are you kidding me? He hears this prophetic dream of uh, the enemy saying that they're going to be defeated. I was struck by the fact that had Gideon had an army equal to or greater than the Midianites, he never would have made one that journey, and he never would have approached the, the fight in a way that would have been any different than any other fight you've ever read about. See, it's the depletion of resources and the abundant need that causes Gideon to go, all right, if we're going to win, there's got to be a different way. If we're going to win, there's got to be a different way. So here's the beauty and power of weakness is not only uh, that it subdues our pride and that it increases our dependence, but it also stimulates our creativity. Where you go, God, I don't have the resources to do it the normal way. So you've got to show up and you've got to make a way. I always tell people in premarital counseling who are just about to get married to embrace the seasons of being poor. I meet so many young married folks that run up credit cards trying to do things awesome instead of embracing the season that they're in of saying we don't have a lot of resources, but maybe just maybe we don't need them to have fun and to make some memories and to actually have a season of life that's filled with God and his goodness and his glory. I can remember being in college, dating my wife, now my wife, Kelly, where um, CSU would have these coupon booklets that had two-for-one Qdoba burritos in them, right? And they didn't, it wasn't like one per customer ever. It was just one per customer per visit. Well, Kelly and I made a lot of visits, okay? Because I went with my backpack. I loaded up with these coupon books. <laughs> when I ride my bike home, I'm like, boom, dates for a year. How do you feel about Qdoba again? Awesome. Okay, great, and, and we were poor, we didn't have anything, and it was one of our best seasons of life. See, a depletion of resources often points us into directions that we wouldn't normally go. Coming to the end of your rope, will you look up at me for a second? Coming to the end of your rope is not the end of the road. It's just the end of what you envisioned your life to look like and be, which is a beautiful position to be in because that's where God meets you and says, oh, you thought the goal was this, but I have so much more for you. And if you hadn't have run out empty, you may have never asked the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords what he thought. I'm convinced, convinced that God is looking for more Weak people to use for his glory. More people who are in need and understand it 
that he can use for his glory because that's who he shines through. And friend, your greatest asset, the thing that you bring most to the kingdom of God may very well be your greatest weakness. Because those are the things that God shines through. Those are the areas that God fills. In his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul writes this. He says, but we have this treasure, um, this gospel treasure, this glory of God, his sufficiency treasure. And we carry around this beautiful treasure in these really crazy, normal, everyday bodies. He calls them jars of clay, earthen vessels, to show. So why does God put his glory and power in people like you and me? to show that this all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why. That's why he chooses to use frail and broken vessels. And I was reminded this week that light is displayed in many times out of our weaknesses and the cracks in our life far better than it is out of the strengths of our life. Eric, will you turn those lights off for me? Look at this. Two very similarly sized pots. But one of them has, as you can see, a bunch of holes in it. And the other one, this one here, is the way that many of us want to live our life. We want to live under this sort of um, false front that we put out for everybody that says everything's okay. And when we do that, what we do is we cover some of the greatest cracks that God in his glory and grace could shine through. So I think when God calls the church to honesty, when he says, I will work through your weakness because in your weakness I am made strong, here's what he's saying. You carry around the glory of Christ in your body, an earthen vessel, and the way that his glory gets out is not through our strengths but through our cracks. Through us being willing to say, I don't have it all together and I'm completely imperfect, and I'm struggling with sin, and I'm struggling with doubt, and I live in shame, and I live in guilt, and and there's a lot of these things that have their claws in me, and God says, all right, when you do that, when you share that, and you stop pretending and playing the game, those are areas not only that I can now heal, but that I can shine through. I long for us to be a place, friends, where we say it's okay to not be okay. Because in what we're doing when we say that is I have enough confidence and trust in Jesus to remember that he's okay and that his grace is sufficient for me. And so I wonder if in some ways have we been covering our weaknesses and they're the very things that God wants to shine through. Because we can pretend like we have it all together or we can be honest and say that we don't. And there's a way that Jesus has made much of through our life, and it's in saying he's healed, healed the marriage, healed the kids. His grace is sufficient for us. It wasn't easy, but I clung to him with everything I have, and I found that he is enough. To quote the great modern hymn, I will not boast in anything No strength, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his power 
and resurrection. I won't boast in anything, but I will boast in this. He is sufficient. He is enough by his grace and his mercy. I pray that you'll believe it and that you will step into that life. The weak is the new strong. Let's pray. Eric, will you hit those lights? Let's pray. We close our time together. So King Jesus, we come to you not pretending like we're, we have it all together, not pretending like we're even close to being amazing or awesome or as amazing or awesome as we hope people think we are. But we come to you, people who are in need. We never want to grow beyond that, Jesus. We never want to mature beyond bowing at your throne to find grace and mercy in our time of need, which we freely admit is more often than we'd like to freely admit. So as you bring us low, Jesus, in order to exalt us, would you remind us that the position of power is actually on our knees? Pride subdued, dependency increased, creativity heightened because of the fact that we need you and because of the fact that in your people's need, you meet that need with your provision. We love you, Jesus, and we lift high your name. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.